Wow, I couldn't be more thrilled. A true legend, hero, one of the deepest musicians I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. Lee Rittenauer is plugging in today and playing guitar for you and talking all about his new solo guitar album, which is called Dreamcatcher, out everywhere now. It's an incredible hang with Lee Rittenauer, and it's brought to you today by NAMM and their Believe in Music Week, which starts January 18th. You don't want to miss this, and you don't even have to leave your house to attend. Basically, folks, NAMM is happening on your laptop, iPad, tablet, smartphone this year. Well, when I say this year, I mean January 18th, 2021. You can register for free at attend.believeinmusic.tv, and I will give you that URL again. You just register there. The site is very informative. It's going to show you everything that's going to be going on. You're going to have access to all the latest gear, you know, checking out all the new videos and product reveals in real time. It'll be like walking the floor, but you don't even have to leave your iPad. There'll be multiple channels for you to check out, like Believe TV, which will show you the power of music education and feature exciting performances. Plus, there will be 150 or more professional development and training sessions and clinics for all sectors of the music industry. The Gear TV channel will be like walking the show floor with product demos and all the other new content regarding the latest innovations from your favorite brands. Artist TV will bring celebrity power and insights to the event with live music, artist appearances, and interviews, and will engage music enthusiasts worldwide. And remember, of course, you can meet up with other people from around the world who are also attending virtually. It's the Believe in Music Week, starting January 18th. Register for free. Learn all about it. It's a great website at attend.believeinmusic.tv. That's attend.believeinmusic.tv. I registered. It's super easy. And I'll see you there. Yes, folks, Lee Rittenauer, Grammy-winning great guitarist and producer and composer, has a new record out. It's called Dreamcatcher. samples of it right now. Lee is one of those guitar heroes, you know, that guitar heroes come in so many flavors and shapes and sizes and, and Lee's one of my favorite kind because he's, yeah, he's been established for a long time now. His first presence really became known was when he put out Captain Fingers and other like 70s fusion records. Great stuff. But Lee, he's done so much since then, you know. I remember when I first caught up to him, it was uh, I was a teenager listening to his Grammy-winning record Harlequin with Dave Grusin, the great composer and producer and one of his best friends on planet Earth. The other reason Lee is such a hero to me is his ability to work with so many incredible artists and give them platinum guitar tracks, everyone from George Benson to Pink Floyd. Gosh, when he was 16, he recorded on a Mamas and a Papas record. I mean, how do you even get started being a professional session cat when you're 16? Lee's astounding, his groove is astounding, his Rolodex, the musicians, the crowds he plays with. Like, check out Foreplay with Harvey Mason and Nathan East, etc. The band they put together in the early 90s. Yeah, we got to hear some of that. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today, including facing probably the biggest guitar tragedy. I would say the biggest gear tragedy, not to mention like personal tragedy in terms of losing everything you own pretty much. 
sources on that. There's a lot of stuff we get into on this interview. And the whole time, he's proving to the world that you can indeed have a conversation while playing guitar. You know how it is. Your brother, your sister, your mom looks at you and says, you're playing right now. Are you listening to me? I'm talking to you. I love that Lee is always playing guitar. Such a nice touch. My name is Jude Gold. I hope you enjoyed the last episode last week with Andy Timmons. Getting all kinds of incredible feedback on that one. Of course, if you haven't heard it, you got to go back and check it out. Plays a ton of guitar for you, and he's got that tone dialed, whether it's clean or dirty. Just beautiful stuff from Andy. And I can't recommend it enough going back and checking out Nile Rogers and these other episodes. In case you missed any of them, please write a nice review. Share it with your friends, most of all. Spread the word. Five and a half years strong. No Guitar is Safe podcast. Keep it alive till you're 95. Let's hop in that copter and we're just going across town today. There simply is no better way to beat the traffic. No guitar is safe. I got my Yamaha NCX5 just plugged in direct. And that's going through Logic Audio, through my Apogees, and uh, I'm the modern man. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how we're all becoming de facto engineers now of some kind while we're trying to do a normal conversation we have to also be responsible for settings and knobs and levels yeah no kidding right yeah, yeah you always sound great man i've been uh i was just going on a you know lee rittenauer deep dive and just i realized suddenly yeah, no, how I think, influenced i, I am you ever have yeah. someone where you realize gosh I, that's he's really affected my playing like the, like the solo on the bird from uh, Harlequin, that was on the radio, and I got that on vinyl, and I listened to that a million times. Like the, that record, in that spot on that vinyl record, is probably like half as thick that the actual disc compared to the rest. Like, a, oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing sometimes when we hear stuff years later that we said, "Wow, that guy did really impact my playing." And 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 you don't sometimes give it credit, or you don't think about it even yourselves back then, you know. Yeah, and I think it's the your dynamics between the the loud and soft of your notes, and just also the pocket, the groove. You have a a groove that is very identifiable. That, and I've just ah. like I was been tripping on this because and you're a guy like Steve Lukather too where all of a sudden I find out you're on all these tracks that I have listened to all my life like one song I performed a lot with my trio was Tom Brown's Funkin' for Jamaica oh right right <laughs> and, yeah and it makes perfect sense when you hear the guitars on there that that would be you I think it's you doing the yeah or whatever the two little parts are Exactly. And, uh, you know, it was Dave Grusin, who's known as this consummate, you know, s- 
cinema guy with you know a hundred piece orchestra writing all these movies and then doing GRP records and doing jazz and stuff. He was on. Uh, you know, he, he produced that track in, uh, in Funkin' for Jamaica and that, back in the day, and it was it's like still one of the most sampled tracks in all of R&B. I would mm. never have guessed that Grusin was a producer or even that that track was done in L.A., you know. I, when I found out it was Jamaica, Jamaica what? Queens we were talking about, I just pictured it being done in some, you know, studio up in Queens. <laughs> Well, well, the, the the main part of it was done in New York, and uh, and then we overdubbed a, a couple of tracks here and there, and ah. and uh, he was it, everybody was in those days everybody was floating between New York and L.A., you know, and so a young Marcus Miller and whoever was you know all the Jamaica Queens guys that were Tom Brown and all those guys that were coming out of there and on GRP Records, and then uh, the L.A. guys were and and Dave was floating between the two cities and. And we had all our cats out here, you know, with uh, with, with Harvey Mason and, and and then Anthony Jackson, the bass player, moved out here for a long time. Abraham Laboreal, of course. And, oh, yeah. Um, you know, all these incredible players were floating and back and forth between. Uh, and then, of course, Gad, Steve Gad was on the, the West, the East Coast. But, and, and then all these other amazing drummers in L.A., uh, Jeff Beccaro, of course, and all the Toto guys and... And then you you know you had Richard T and Eric Gale and all those guys back east and it was it was quite a scene between the two cities. Incredible. And then speaking of these these jams, like another one of of, of all of our lives is the Brothers Johnson version of Strawberry Letter Twenty Three. <laughs> that breakdown again. The pocket is undeniable on that famous guitar solo. <laughs> The original is incredible, but your version is even more, you know, three-dimensional, clear. Well, the, uh, you know, the, I used to work for Quincy a lot in those days, and his great engineer that just passed uh, very, very recently, a couple of weeks ago, Bruce Sweetine. Oh. And Bruce, Bruce did all these amazing albums for Michael Jackson with Quincy, and, and, and way before that, I mean, he was doing, you know, 40 years of, of projects, uh, you know, way before Quincy and then all of Quincy's stuff. And so I got to know him and, of course, Q very well and, and was on a lot of that stuff. And, and that story with the Brothers Johnson, when I did my very, very first album, uh, Lewis Johnson, I, I, I had worked already on, uh, on the Brothers Johnson first album and, and Quincy had produced it. And, and then uh, Lewis came over to my house in Los Angeles and, and uh, started learning one of my tunes and, and I invited him to play on my first record and, and so, uh, and he was just this natural player. And then George Johnson, I didn't know as well. Of course, I knew George as well and he was playing this great funky rhythm on all the Brothers Johnson stuff. And, and But it really took Quincy to, uh, I mean, these guys were out of, you know, South Central LA and, and they're just really talented, but really raw. They were, I mean, They'd hardly done anything, and Quincy had found this tape 
or somebody had submitted it and, and he just loved it. And he, he had the vision like Quincy always did of, of where it could take it, you know, and, and the next thing, you know, they went from making their first record to headlining a 14,000 seater at the forum where the Lakers used to play, you know? So (laughs) it was like, yeah. So, uh, and then the brothers Johnson, the uh, strawberry letter 23 track that had its own little story because great uh, blues guitarist uh, from LA, Shuggy Otis wrote that tune and Shuggy had demoed it. And, and those triplet guitar parts, that's pretty much all his stuff. And, and so then Quincy heard the track and thought it would be perfect for the Brothers Johnson. So then he tried to get uh, George Johnson to learn the, the parts. And George was this you know phenomenal, funky rhythm guitar player, but he, he, he wasn't a lead player at all. So Quincy spent apparently about three or four days on that, trying to get George into it, and that wasn't working. And then I think he called Shuggy, and Shuggy, of course, could play it, but... It it wasn't, and it was his riffs. It was his tune. It was every, it was all shuggy stuff. But uh, I don't think it was uh, as polished as, as and is in the pocket as Quincy wanted. Because everything Quincy was doing, he wanted it. He wanted it to feel a certain way. His his whole thing was about the feel, and everybody who played on his dates, whether it was drums, bass, keyboards, whatever, the vocals, you had to be in the pocket. And so he got frustrated with that, those triplet parts and. Bruce Sweeting later told me the story, and because and one day Quincy said, ah, freaking call Rittenauer, he'll get it done. So I show up to A&M Studios, and Quincy's there. He said, Ritt, I'm, I'm going to lunch. He said, have this done when I get back. And he, and he walked out, and I, and I said to Bruce, I said, wow, he was in a rough mood. What, what's going on? And, and he said, ah, oh, and then he told me the story about the thing. I said, well, wow, this must be kind of tricky. Play it for me. And so he played it for me, and it was in three parts, and somebody had scratched out the, the score, and uh, it was kind of, you know, but it, it you know, it really it wasn't really that very hard. It, you know, it was kind of stuff that that we were used to playing all the time. And, and uh, so we, we knocked it out, and Q was happy with it by the time he came back from lunch. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So is there three parts on that or two? Three. I, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I've only heard the two parts. I don't even have any idea what the third part is, but I've I've learned that. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly certain it's three parts. It was like a three part harmony, but you know, it was yeah. they they mixed it a certain way. And I remember doubling. I think each. So there might have been six tracks or something. You know, so yeah. I mean, that was a long long time ago, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it still gets played to this day a lot. Oh yeah, know? well that's one of the few cover. That's, a, that's one of the few songs where there's two versions, and I love both versions. Like I love the Shuggy version, uh-huh. and I love the Brothers Johnson version with the Quincy production and yeah. your guitar playing. Yeah, no, the Shuggy version is great too. That's and that's what I think uh, got. Uh, I mean, I think Shuggy did his version later after the tune was already hit, but the demo, the demo that Shuggy did was great. And his dad, you know, was a big L.A. blues icon, too. So yeah. so they were definitely uh, all over L.A. Yeah does, yeah, does Quincy, I mean, he's an enigma to those of us who've never worked with him. We've just listened to his music all of our lives. But does he have like a intimidating side to him at certain times? <laughs> uh, well... Not, not really. I mean, he's really, he's obviously got unbelievable ears and unbelievable confidence about what he's done. And he's worked with everybody from 
all the great jazz legends to you know the the current pop and hip hop guys and and he just always had these incredible ears and this incredible feel for time and this incredible way of orchestrating so my buddy I never I wasn't on this session but this was a famous session it's like he started to get called to do movie scores this is way way before my time and way before um the you know the famous pop records that he did but he got called started to get called to do um, these movie scores and 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 he had studied you know orchestration and arranging and with, with that famous french uh, teacher oh my goodness i'm forgetting her name she's so famous but he you know quincy understood music to the nth degree always and uh, so he he came and did pawnbroker uh that famous movie back then and 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 he uh it was all orchestrated in the orchestra, and it was very successful. So he started getting called for these movies, and in a way, he was always a producer because he was almost ahead of the director and the producer of the movies in the sense that he he wasn't sure if they were going to like what he liked, and so he started writing less and less. As the, and one day, there's an entire hundred-piece orchestra, and there was no music, and he shows up, and he had the contractor provide blank music scores and pencils and it's a famous story i wasn't on it but uh and i don't know which movie it was but he showed up uh, with melodies in mind and sang the melodies and had everybody write them down as as he went and and <laughs> it, it was a bit of a stretch to do it that way with that big of an orchestra yeah. but that that's how much confidence he had you know to this day you know yeah that. so uh, but uh it was always it was always amazing uh working on his projects because you never knew what to expect yeah what an incredible producer and yeah i can't imagine any more confidence than walking into a room <laughs> at a full orchestra with no music for them wow I had not heard that oh, story. Oh, man. So just before we even get to the new record, just this thing about Pocket, and I've, I really noticed your Pocket when you were playing for us at Musicians Institute one time. You were very nice and came over and did a, a clinic for a, mm-hmm. you know, right. a few hundred music students in the main room, and your groove is so great. And then I read that, I mean, I know that it's, it's well known that you played on The Wall or worked with Pink Floyd when they were creating The Wall, and you are credited. I know that you don't even necessarily remember all the stuff you did in that session, but you are credited for playing on Run Like Hell. And when I listen to that, yes. that main guitar part, I'm kind of hearing that writ pocket a little bit. I'm not sure. Like maybe, <laughs> do you? Or did you play some of that? Well, you know, I think I'm credited on the acoustic guitar on, on, on that particular song. But the interesting thing was that it was such a phenomenal time in LA for recording that even Pink Floyd was, who was recording at Producers Workshop, which was this famous little studio in in Hollywood there, and um, it, it and and the producer and you know he, he very well known obviously and and of course Pink Floyd was already a super super superstar uh, as a band and. Uh, Gilmore was already incredibly respected, and they, but they, they like everyone was influenced by all the stuff going on in the '80s, which primarily was being recorded in New York or LA, and some in London, some in Nashville, but uh, a, a big dose of it in Southern California, and there was all these phenomenal guitar players, rhythm players, funk, rock, 
jazz, yeah. R&B, you name it. And and then, of course, it, it had the whole acoustic folk thing. So L.A., San Francisco, the whole California thing was very, it did have an, an influence. And uh, and so I think that those kind of guitar parts, I, I got called to play because they were very familiar with with my groove and my time and the kind of parts I was playing on records. Yeah. And uh, maybe, you know, whether I played it or Gilmore played it, it was, it's all kind of, uh, you yeah. know, it all kind of blends together. But uh, And I'm not going to take credit for something that he did because they, they were phenomenal. And they they would spend an enormous, an enormous amount of time on just small parts, you know, just getting them right. Yeah. Steely Dan was the same way. Kenny Loggins was the same way. The Bee Gees were the same way. They had budgets in those days, and they care. You know, there was no Pro Tools. There was no computers there was no drum machines there was, yeah. <laughs> there was none of the, there was none of this stuff right there was no logic audio there was no you know cubase none of this stuff right so um, everybody was you know now you pull up a sample on on logic or any of the programs and it's it's right there and it's like the, you know four bars of some great little pocket and 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 these groups would spend hours and days and sometimes weeks on one sound you know it was like so it, it was amazing so to answer your question directly uh, you know uh, i think we were influenced by what all the Pink Floyd was doing as a band and as a concept and as tunes and and maybe they were influenced by some of the studio players and guys like me and and uh, you know uh, all the other great uh, LA studio players at that time. And what was it like working with Gilmore in the in that realm in those days? I know, I know that you told me you walked in with a incredible arsenal of guitars and amps so your best of your best cartage somebody brings it all for you and you're ready to impress yeah. them and what happened yeah you know, I, I rock into this huge crate you know this, this is the size of uh, three uh, sub-zero refrigerators <laughs> and and uh, you know and it's got you know every kind of kind of acoustic guitar and 12 string and high string and electrics and you know all sorts of stuff in it and amps and pedal boards and I think, yeah, I'm going to blow these guys away. And and uh, uh, sure enough, I walk into Producer's Workshop, and I, I remember there was about, I don't know, 20 to 30 guitars lined up in stands uh, that were all Gilmore stuff. And and it was just one phenomenal guitar after the next, you know. And, uh, and so they, they, were, they were not overly impressed with my stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, but it, it wasn't about that, you know. It was about making music and, and uh, so, and they were very cool, you know, when uh, Another Brick in the Wall, when, when they were working on that solo, I had walked in and, and they say, hey, check this out that Gilmore's been working with. And I think they were working on that solo. For, I, don't, I don't even want to say how long. It was forever, though. And, and, uh, and they were very cool because I remember them saying, uh, we're not sure how to get out of the solo, like just the last couple bars, because they were into the detail, you know, like every note mattered in, on every part of their record. So... And and if you got into it with them, uh, they dug that, right? So I said, well, it's very cool. And they said, look, Lee, we're not going to use anything that you do. It's definitely going to be Gilborn. But would you play, we're going to play you like a certain amount of bars, and then you play the last few bars and just give us some ideas of what you would do. I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, okay. So I did a bunch of, you know, played a bunch of things, kind of got a sound somewhat similar to what he had. And 
and played a bunch of riffs and and they said okay let's move on and of course they never used what i did they it was definitely gilmore but i was really interested when the the record came out and i heard the solo and i and i heard what was maybe maybe a smidge of of a little influence yeah, but yeah. You, you know you're talking about the I, I, the, the hit song because there's three there's two or three ones that say brick in the wall in the title but you're talking about like the main exactly <laughs> Yeah, I, I like to imagine which parts might be you. Like, I don't know, like... <laughs> at the very end, there, well, the very end, there's like... So there's a little funky part. Like, to me, that sounds like it might be Rick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's when you go back and listen to that record now, what we all have in our head about Pink Floyd, it's actually a, a much funkier record than you would sort of normally in your head sort of summarize who they are exactly. you know which which uh kind of goes to the fact that uh things were really tightening up on in a recording pop way back in those days and and people were spending enormous amount of time just to making making sure that the tracks were perfect you know when we we a bunch of us were hired to go record with barry gibb for his solo record down in florida and we spent a week on one track trying to get it right and uh we just couldn't seem to to please him at all and and this was again before the drum the lynn drum machine and um and i mean everyone was on this date i mean it was i i was flowing down and jeff mccarl from toto was there and uh, richard t the great pianist and uh there was another uh, guitarist from the bg's band and and uh, Le- I think Leland Scalar was there, or the bass player. Yeah. Just, you know, an A crew uh, getting paid A money. And we were there a week and didn't get one thing for him. He w- they were not pleased. And finally, they, they had been working uh, apparently on uh, months or years on a mechanical <laughs> machine that would hit the, the snare drum. And... The, and ah. we all got let we all got let go back to the hotel one by one as the week rolled on from the percussionist to the bass player to the two guitar players to the two keyboard players and finally the only one that was left playing against the demo was Jeff Bacaro and Jeff walked in on Friday and we're all playing pool in the hotel room and 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 we said who's left and Jeff was laughing he says no I I got let go too and and he said well you guys got you cats got to come over to the studio and check this out and we walked over in the middle of this huge room was this mechanical machine hitting the snare drum on two and four? <laughs> wow! And yeah, and, uh, and 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 I don't think, and even in those days, that was too primitive then too. So that that didn't work. But they were uh, they were willing to try anything to get the time perfect. And uh, later, I heard that uh, they used uh, Barry's touring band and and somehow got the record done. But uh, y- you know, they were. In those days, people would do amazing thing with tape. You know, they, they they would do a demo with their band, and then they would find and they would jam for like for a week, and then and they would record all this stuff on twenty four track inch tape, and then find four bars that felt great, and then they would take that tape and their engineer would cut that four bars up, loop it, and make duplicates of those four bars, tape them together. That's where the term straight- loop comes from. That's it. And that's how they created those loops. And that's how all that Saturday Night Live, all that funky dance stuff happened because it, it was really, they don't get some of the credit that they deserve because some, some of that dance stuff was, 
was really created from doing those kinds of things. And, and far as I know, they were one of the first to do it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think Quincy might have done that on the off the wall, Michael Jackson. Like, I, I yeah, but that was later. Yeah, that was later. But that was that's when I first noticed. It. Like, I listened to the drum part on Working Day and Night. It's like, I'm like, right. How does one human, even the best drummer on planet Earth, play that for four minutes straight without? Then yeah, later I realized it was a analog tape loop, like literally a loop. I mean, I'm guessing. I'm yeah. guessing. No, it, the the razor blade was was really sharp then. I mean, they were cutting twenty four track inch tape and pinning it up on the walls and and having the second engineer label it, you know, and stuff like that. It was, it was, you know, yeah. the computer later took some of the vibe and warmth uh, and and spontaneity out of the out of the recording process. But back in those days, everybody was in the room recording, but sometimes they'd be cutting tape a lot, you know, and, and just finding out the best sections and cutting them together. Amazing. Well, so tell us what guitar you're holding today. Uh, well, I just got this, uh, the uh, NCX uh, 5, which is a Yamaha, and uh, it's their classical uh, acoustic guitar that is not an expensive guitar it's uh i don't even know what the price tag is right now the the three is is out and this this five was supposed to be uh released any day uh, but of course with the uh pandemic that things are everything is upside down you know but uh it was uh very uh challenging and and very nice to uh to do the solo record finally this year because it, uh, I had lost the, my studio and ha- house in Malibu to the fire in 18. Well, I was waiting that, to get to that. I don't know. Maybe you could just tell us about what happened. I mean, obviously there well, were huge fires. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's been huge fires in California, you know, the last few years. and. Malibu, where I had been for 30 years, had never gotten really this kind of major fire through uh, through the Point Doom area. There had been a smaller one and, and a couple of others, but n- never through um, engulfed that part of Malibu before like that. And so, you know, I, I was considered one of the old timers because I'd been out there forever. And so I kept thinking the, the fire would never come. But uh, it, it was interesting because I had just in 2018... Uh, Moved my studio from the from Los Angeles back to Malibu and had built a new studio and had everything there, everything about a hundred about a hundred hundred guitars, about forty amps, all the history of music and everything since I was twelve years old, and uh, so uh, you know I walked out that day. Uh, my wife and I stayed in the area kind of all day down by the beach and kept going back to the house to check and about three in the afternoon we said we better get out of here and, and by 5:30, apparently the house was in flames and uh, so I, I walked out with seven guitars still thinking that we would be back the next day <laughs> and wow. uh, and, uh, and we grabbed just a few you know uh, very few things we were we were not the the brightest on the planet but who uh, when it comes to pre- predicting that it would get everything but yeah, I uh, mean, you don't think of the fires raging down to the beach line or whatever like no and and uh, and, and, and we weren't totally at the beach but uh but, but even nonetheless, so you know what i mean it, it, 
Yeah, exactly. Like the coastal, the coastal air and everything, and the greener, greener grass and stuff. It just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. I mean, I'm so no. sorry, Britt. That is just so brutal, man. I got my condolences. Well, you know, it it uh, it it really put everything in perspective. And the the other thing, and not to belabor the point, but this is kind of where the guitar comes back into fold, and and me doing the Dreamcatcher album. Uh, is that a week later, nothing to do with the fire. For the first time in my life, I had to be in the hospital to have an aortic valve replacement. And, and I had just been hitting it hard for ever since I was 12 years old, you know, and, and doing everything with the music business and everything in between. And, and uh, it finally uh, it caught up with me, and I, I had to have this operation. So we really had to get out of there because a week later I was going in for surgery Nothing to do sure. with the fire, so so I had uh, and I had canceled a world tour. Part of it was that was in Japan, and my buddies were all in Japan that week. And had I been in Japan, uh, first of all, I wasn't allowed to go to on a on an international flight or any flight because it was found out that I really had to go take care of this this heart problem. And uh, so I was home. But had I not been home, I would have been in Japan when the house went up in flames, which would have been even weirder you know so so and then you wouldn't have got the seven guitars which every guitar player wonders which guitars they would grab if they were running out of the house what did you grab exactly well i grabbed my 1949 l5 which my dad got me when i was 13 because i was such a fan of west montgomery i mean my dad bought me a west montgomery album when i was 12 i think it was bumping and uh and then we used to go down to this club that's still there in, in Hermosa Beach called Lighthouse. The light, it was a very famous jazz club back in those days. And uh, it's just a cafe now. But uh, I used to hear Wes Montgomery. And, and uh, in those days, you could sit at the bar, and, and which was across from the bandstand. And I'd watch Wes. And, and I'd see all these other great players. And uh, later, when I could drive at 16, I'd go down and check out their sound checks and stuff, you know. So it was a big influence. And so I grabbed that guitar. My dad got me this L5 when I was 13. And I told him it would be the last guitar ever. And and uh, it was a 49 that we bought for $600 at the time, you know, which was a lot of money. And uh, uh, But uh, so then uh, the other guitars I got out were... Um, I got out my um, 335, which I got when I was 17, the dot inlay, the dot inlay, and uh, the 1960. And I got out the two Les Pauls that Mike McGuire from Gibson had made for me. And of course, he was a, a friend ever since he was a kid. Him and Al Carnes that started Valley Arts, and so I got out, I got out the, the two Les Pauls that. Uh, and one of them is is on one of the tracks on uh, the new album called Abbott Kinney is the song. And uh, then I got out my Ramirez uh, classical guitar. And the funny thing is I got out, not the one I'm holding right now because this one's a little newer, but I got out the Yamaha NCX3, which is, I forget the list price of that guitar, but it's it's about... I don't know, a thousand dollars or something, or maybe less. And compared to my other guitars, it's not a guitar you would think 
that you would grab. But I, I just loved composing on it, and it, it's just one of those guitars that feels good when you play it. And it, now the the next version of it is is the one that's on the album, and it's even nicer, the NCX5. Um, so I, I grabbed that one, and Yamaha loves that story because I'm, I'm I grabbed my I grabbed my 49 L5 and my 1960 uh, uh, you know dot. 335 and my two less balls and and uh you know so it, it was uh, yeah. it, but but i thought we would be back the next day i didn't grab my my 335 strat that was my serial number 0335 for uh, uh, my, my fender strat that uh, i didn't grab that that got what year was before. that that was about a 58 or something like that i think so yeah, it was. Yeah, and uh, wow. it, it was a bunch of bunch of others, of course, you know, that, I, that I didn't grab. But um, and then, oh, I, I did grab uh, my Lee Rittenauer uh, uh, model, uh, my uh, my L5 model that the Gibson was making, the Rip model. So and that one was the one that was going on the road with me so often, you know. And and uh, after after the fireman's. You know, I ended up purchasing obviously a lot of stuff. I lost my Trident Series 80 board and all the good mics and you know everything. So when I when I went oh to do the gosh. solo when I went to do the solo guitar album, it was really interesting because uh, I had to put together this new room in in this rental house, and which was fine. And and the Apogee people were were great. They got me the Symphony IOS system and you know and I. Every, these are all small companies, so most of the stuff I ended up paying for. Unfortunately, I had insurance, and then I got my Genelex back, and I, oh, I, I did grab my computer that day, so I was smart enough to, to grab my Mac, which, of course, it, it just had yeah. you know a bunch of drives connected to it, so um, so that was important. But uh, and I and I did uh, lose. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of backup for for my albums and and the thing as well. But the point being, not about what I lost, is is what inspired to realize what I had, which was yeah. you know the the history of playing the guitar and and the love of it still and the ability to experience that I've had to make a record because I could go in and I had to do it in a room that was kind of put together like anybody else puts their room together, and I couldn't have my engineer that's done my records for 40 years don murray he couldn't come over and because of covid you know i mean he didn't have covid but you know everybody right. was being being very careful about yep. so you know the the playing field was level so I, I realized okay well i have learned a thing or two throughout my life <laughs> wow very you know it's very inspiring yes celebrate what you have and you still have the love. Okay, I gotta pause here for a second and just say, I can't help but notice, and I've, you know me, man, I've been interviewing guitar players. You, for, you're one of the only cats I know who's really actually playing while you talk. I'm gonna try it for a second. Like, you're like talking a story and you're like, and you're just really, you're really actually playing stuff the whole time. Like, you, I can hear you in the back. You're playing like some actual lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah no. I, well, you know, you know where that habit started. Uh, 
I mean, we all noodle, right? I mean, we guitar players are noodling. We, we, we sit in front of the TV or whatever. <laughs> we, we just play, which is, which is a good oh, yeah. thing. But, but um, when I first started getting popular with my own records, and, and, and I started playing some bigger rooms, and I remember playing my, not the first time I played at the Hollywood Bowl, but, you know, the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles is, is just, you know, it's like, it's big, it's like 15,000, 17,000 people. And so um, I was, I think, uh, I was part of a, it wasn't at the Playboy Festival that time, but it was another jazz festival. I think Giroux was on it and a couple other people, but I, I, I think I had had, couple of pretty big records already so I, I was definitely uh, uh, you know uh, it was an important gig for me and so at the time I had a manager and I had a music attorney and there was the agents and and of course it was Los Angeles so you got your friends and family and so I remember that uh, everybody wanted my attention beforehand and I couldn't focus and I couldn't you know, I, I said to my touring manager, I said, okay, I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to warm up before the gig. So then I would go in my little dressing room and I'd be by myself. And I hated that because that made me more nervous. <laughs> and then right. and then I'd walk out and there'd be, a, you know, 30 people to hang out with before the gig. So then I couldn't focus on the gig. So what I started to learn from doing these kind of gigs, especially in L.A. or places that New York or London or people places where you would end up knowing a lot of people as long as I had a guitar in my hands and walking around so I, I would walk around backstage and and just talk to anybody and that's what I do today you know it's, it's, yeah. it's like I, I'm, I'm I'm good you know I can I can be at a small club or I can be at the Hollywood Bowl or wherever it is as long as I got a guitar and and then sometimes you know you're on the road they want you to do interviews and sometimes the only time you can squeeze it in is you know between sound check and the gig so so then I said yeah that's fine as long as I can uh, as long as I don't lose my voice and not that I'm singing but you know as long as I don't get too tired and, and uh, I can talk and, and warm up at the same time so then I found like that I was really warmed up for the gig because sometimes I'd be like playing for like two or three hours before the gig <laughs> it really does make a difference yeah yeah so yeah, for me, I, I can't go on a big stage or any any stage, small or big, without you know warming up before I play. That's great, yeah, because uh, you know sometimes certain bands, I guess a blues band or something like. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to say that, but uh, yeah, depending on the music, warming up really helps. <laughs> but, well, yeah, no, I mean, and warming up is not just about having your technique so you can you know you could be playing in a pop band you could be playing a rhythm part all night long you could be playing yeah. uh in a fusion band or, or a metal band or or singing in an orchestra at, you know backing up some popular singer at the bowl and and playing three notes the whole night but for me um playing before a, a gig it just sort of centers me period you know, so it, yes. it's like I'm I'm here to play music. So let me let me warm up and and be with the instrument. You know, because all this other kind of bullshit of of you know saying I'm a star and all that that doesn't work for me. <laughs> yes. 
So, uh, you know, time is just flying here. I could talk to you all day, but um, you, maybe you're a little bit warmed up now. Is there anything on this uh, beautiful nylon guitar that you'd like to demonstrate from Dreamcatcher, the new record? Like, what? I mean, obviously, that's the opening track, the title track. It seems like it has two nylon string guitars on it. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that was an interesting when I, you know, f just the real quick the backstory on, you know, I had done all these albums throughout my career, and, and I realized that, you know, I had done group albums with Foreplay, and I had done collaborations with Dave Grusin, and and I, of course I had done millions of sideband sessions, and and had done all my own records that had everything from uh, small group to bigger groups to every kind of orchestration but I had never done a solo guitar record and I think I was so used to historically playing with a band from my studio upbanging and from from everything I learned from the time I was a kid that I I never thought of myself as a solo guitarist but then once I uh, I started doing gigs and, and I would on stage sometimes improvise and kind of stream of consciousness, uh, start a song and do an intro and then get into the real intro of the song. Or at the ending of a song, I would transition into the next song with some solo guitar. So everyone kept saying, Lee, you got to do a solo guitar record. So it was on the books for a while and I kept composing and trying to figure out because you know I'm, I'm i'm used to hearing joe pass and and uh, even when i did six string theory record you know we had guys like joe robinson or you know incredible andy mckee and, and it was like it was like uh yeah no i'm not i'm not those guys when it comes to solo guitar you know and, and then i studied with christopher parkening classical guitar when i was younger and and I would go to master classes and watch Segovia. And it was like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not those guys, you know. And uh, but it, I had, you know, I, I think I was always a composer and and writing my own songs, whether it was kind of through the computer and orchestrating more through some program like Logic Audio, or picking up a guitar and just uh, you, you know doing my voicings and. And uh, so I, I started messing with like I got fresh strings I'm a little out of tune now so I you know I'd, I'd be using tense kind of became a signature for me it became a sound and then my voice leadings you know every good guitar player that has their own style has their 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 own way of voicing their chords you know so so you know it's it's just yeah. it, it, it became part of the writing and it was really interesting. That sounds so great. That one is Charleston? Yeah. Which I'll tell you the backstory. 
some lessons. So it it's you know you go to a place like Charleston and we had this year there's this phenomenal year where the country was so divided and and there was uh, you know again all this half the country mm-hmm. voting one way half the country voting the other way and 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 just a, a lot of division you know uh, but it, it was funny it was I had not played in uh, Charleston I think once or twice and so. I think it was in 17 or 18 uh, that I played down there. And, and I, you know, because I'm kind of known as more of the jazz guy, I don't get to the South as much. And, and I'm, I'm almost always intimidated whenever I go to Nashville or, or to go down to the South because I, I love all the guitar players down there and all the guys with that incredible feel. And, and uh, I have so much respect for the players down in uh, in that part of the the country, you know, and the kind of the the music that uh, has come out of the South of of the U.S., let alone New York and and of course California, but you know the uh, there, there's just great music from all over this country, and and so when I played in Charleston, the audience was very mixed, you know, it was. I don't know. I don't remember exactly yeah. the numbers, but it was half black, half white. You know, it was like young, old. It was my kind of audience, and they were into the music. You know, yep. they were into the music, and and so the band was playing great that night. We had fun. They took me to a southern restaurant. It was cool. You know, I wrote a tune called Charleston. You know, based on my experience in that city. And then later, you know, people said. Uh, that tune might get some heat because you know it's like there's so much problems with the systemic racism and I said no Mm -hmm. I know I know you know I said but I'm you know musicians we travel around the world and we we play with I play with people every from every country in the world of every color it's like musicians you know if everyone would just be more like us we'd (laughs) ain't that the truth we, we're all mixing it together, you know. We were just like, forget this bullshit, man. We're, and, you know, we found out now from COVID, you know, man, it, it, it doesn't know about any color. You know, it's just it's hit, hitting everybody hard now, you know. So, so it's... Uh, anyway, so... I know what you're saying, though. I've been to Charleston. I played there. It's one of the most beautiful towns in the country. And then you walk through certain parts and you realize this is where the slave market was and it's definitely a reality check no exactly i mean i'm not i'm not making light of it It holy cow you know so i'll tell you one quick story that i haven't told too many people and actually i don't know if i've ever did it did it print but my my dad moved out from dearborn michigan with his wife pearl my mom and in 1946, right after the war, and he was a, a piano player, an amateur piano player who wanted to be a pro. And before World War II, he would he would go into Detroit and listen to the jazz and blues and honky tonk piano players and stride players and and kind of try to sit in and and he just loved you know the music that was coming out of Detroit in those days. And his parents were. Born Michigan, and and uh, they they were just not having it that he was going in Detroit here, you know. So later, when he moved out to Los Angeles, they followed him out here because they wanted the sunshine too, and and uh, and and they have you know had a nice life, and it was a great place for for us to grow up in. And uh, when 
Motown moved out to L.A. and I was doing Motown sessions, you know, my dad and I, we were like the proudest, you know, it's like, man, my son's working in the, on, at, on Motown sessions, you know, and uh, it, it, but it, my, his parents, they, they at one point started to tell me like, oh, no, you shouldn't be a guitar player, you, sh- you shouldn't be a professional musician, you know, you better get something more steady, and, and he just cut them right off and said, no, 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 no. He's going to do what he does best, which is playing the guitar, you know. So in a way, he's, you know, that racism worked the other way. You know, it was like the people who are, are hip to what's going on is like, there's no time for that now, man. we got to take the best of all the worlds and put it together. Yeah, you said it. And the music is a universal language that, you know, un- music and COVID-19 Cross all barriers. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Cross all barriers. <laughs> Damn! I haven't heard it put quite like that, but I'll, I'll probably. It's, it's like I'll this. Probably... It's like music, mathematics, and COVID nineteen. <laughs> Universal language. Oh boy! Isn't that something? Man? Yeah. So um, yeah, you said you plugged in your Les Paul for that uh, Abbott Kinney song with the distorted guitar. It sounds really. Yeah. shutdown of the entire world happened in March and once again I, w- I always think I was leaving on a world tour March 18th or something like that and my production manager who lives in Italy he was on his getting practically on an airplane the next day and to join us in Florida and uh, and he said uh, Lee I don't think I can come and I said wow and, and, and I didn't hear that everything was getting ready to shut down yet and he he's explained that Italy was one of the first places there where it was hit hard and uh, so and then you know within a day or two everything was over so after the shutdown everything's canceled and everyone's in shock and you're seeing the pr- pictures of of Paris and New York and Tokyo and you know just every place empty right and and uh, and so then I said, heck with it, I'm going to take a bike ride. I take my bike over to Abbott Kinney in Venice, California here. And, you know, one of the most popular streets in Santa Monica, Venice, and usually jammed with folks and, and cafes and coffee shops and, and just all the time crowded. And yes. that day I drove the bike and there was no cars there. There was no people. Every place was either boarded up or closed up and... It was like I was just got so depressed, you know, because it was the first time that you're actually thinking this is the way the whole world is right now. And then all of a sudden, upstairs in an apartment, I guess, that I didn't even know existed anymore, there was somebody rocking out on the guitar and, and they had turned it up to 10. And the sound was just bouncing up and down Avid Kinney. And it was a lot of, you know, because the street was empty, it was a lot of reverb and delay and 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 they probably didn't have the same impression that I had, but it was like God was playing the guitar, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it just brought this huge smile to my face. And so I went home, and I couldn't get that that image and that sound out of my my head, uh, and that it it had lifted my spirit that much. And so then I I ended up writing this tune, uh, Abbott Kinney, that's on the Les Paul, and I plugged in uh, my Strymon Iridium that I had just gotten recently. That's a very popular. Uh, you know, sophisticated box and and put it through Logic Audio and 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 put on some 
basic effects and just got inspired to do the music. There's so much beautiful stuff on this record. Also, like um, this baritone acoustic stuff. Like maybe it's yeah. low and low and slow. I think that's a, like a baritone steel string. Yeah. was one of the guitars that got lost in the fire and and Taylor was uh, kind enough to replace the baritone and they also gave me a high string at the time and so I you know that this tune called uh, the the one you're mentioning low and slow is is uh I'm play some just playing that head on the Yamaha right now but but I I love the baritone in general because it's tuned down a fourth and it's it's got this low big fat sound and it's very inspirational for writing and uh, so I ended up uh, also composing a tune called Starlight which was the name of my studio yes. and, and, and so so that was dedicated to the to the studio uh, you know with all, losing all the guitars and all my music stuff and, and so so it, it was nice to 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 have that inspiration so abbott kinney on les paul and and having the baritone back and and writing a tune like starlight for the studio and low and slow and and then uh roger sadowski uh supplied me with a jazz guitar uh, the ss15 which was interesting because that ended up on uh, 2020, which was one of the uh, pieces that was more uh, stream of consciousness and just kind of almost improvised. It's a. It's called 2020. It's the last three tracks, part one, part two, and part three. 2020 that closed the album. Yeah, how did that go? Was it? Were you kind of flowing from one into the other? It was really one long long piece that I had started and and I think parts of it like that little counter funnel was just I was in the in the, the moment of of making the record and and I found this beautiful sound on the on the Sadowski and and uh, I think I was just going direct you know and and getting again a couple effects on logic and and uh, ju- you, the sophistication of the pickups that are on some of these newer guitars these days and the sophistication of of what you can do with a, a simple interface is is really pretty amazing and I and I it was so weird that I would never say that I wouldn't want to have my studio and I wouldn't want to have my Trident Series 80 board and all the great mics I had and DIs and, and pedal boards and everything else. But uh, in a way, 
the when the playing field was was leveled it it really came down to the guitar and the music that was in me and uh, so you know it, it it i think the songs were more inspirational because of all that stuff so the 2020 right. was really just this stream of consciousness I, and i cleaned up you know a couple of things i would edit or fix you know because it, it was probably i think a piece like that was 15 or 20 minutes when i improvised it on logic that day I might have even gone back and done it again and there might have been another seven minutes or something. And then I just went through it and edited what I thought was the the best stuff and, and put together the song and, and made it into three parts. And the third part was done towards the end of the year and it was just a little more positive, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but it was reflective. Like there's, you know, a lot of, been a lot yeah. of stuff that's gone on the last few years and in general and especially with with the COVID stuff, but even even in my own personal life, so so it uh, the the album had plenty of inspiration. So that I can say is real about it all the way across the board. That is a beautiful meditation that three part piece, and it's you've gotten to the point where kind of like it reminds me of what Scott Henderson said about his favorite musician Joe Zawinul, who he used ah. to play. How I think was it Scott who told me this? I I think it was Scott. How he could just write a song spontaneously, like a fully formed song with a you know maybe with a bridge and or just like whatever a full piece like in real time and uh i hear you doing that with six strings well you know it's it's i think there are so many incredible musicians in the world today and and uh i wanted to say i you know i have this foundation six string theory that that uh, we can talk about a little bit if we have time but um yeah but far as I think finding your own style and composing is really important you know not you know I mean there's different kinds of composing you can be a composer where you're trying to have the latest hip-hop hit song out there and and or you're a singer-songwriter that's there's all that kind but far as a guitar player I think it helps really help you find your own style so uh, I've, I've written songs ever since my first album, which is, you know, now I'm 45, 46 albums in. And, you know, I've, I've got thousands of tunes that I've written over the years. And, and uh, so it, it, uh, it, it, it definitely, when, you, when you're writing and, and you have the material for an album and, or your band or, your, your, yourself to play live yeah. or whatever, I, I think it just makes you that much greater of a musician. That's beautiful. I mean, it's a good point that you mentioned, like, like Zawinul, by the point that Scott is talking about, he's has countless albums behind him and has written hundreds of songs, so the process... Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and Chris Zawinul would, would, you know, um, and, and all those guys were just phenomenal writers you know and and uh, when I there was a studio where we used to do jingles at back in the 70s and and uh, uh, we all met Jaco Pastorius back then and uh, I walked into his studio one day when they were doing uh, and Alex Acuna was playing drums and they were doing the heavy weather uh, album with Jaco and uh, it was like and they had it cranked up in the studio to like 10 it was like <laughs> The threshold rock and roll volume, but they were doing this this you know iconic fusion album with Jaco and uh, Pistorius and and Zavenu and and Wayne and and uh, just you know you you don't get any better musicians on the planet than those guys, and uh, it happened to be that album and 
and me and a couple of the other guys were in the corner going this is unbelievable <laughs> so That's but so again cool. it was about the tunes you know it was like this phenomenal playing going on but at the at the end of the day you know just these amazing songs that were you know being so i say to every band out there to every guitar player man write your tunes it, it really helps you know make you a better musician now yes the six string theory organization or a competition or multi whatever you want to call it it does all it encapsulates a lot of things but yeah you've been finding these great young musicians let's see you got guitar players piano players drummers bassists yeah and bassists yes and uh we were uh, the last competition was in 2018 and we were supposed to have one in 2020 and of course we couldn't because of everything falling apart but uh we did manage now to uh have a, a free contest that's running and it'll run till uh, about February. We haven't even picked a cutoff date yet, but it's, it's, I had put one of my tunes up there, Starlight, which is one of the ones I wrote on baritone. simple tune and I use some pretty fairly simple chords so yeah. so I, I put that tune and we put the score up there and now the album's out so you can hear my version on baritone but I said you know somebody sign up make a band version of it make it a, a solo guitar make it a jazz version of it make it a a program version make it whatever you want turn it into your because that tune you know it's it's this, the melody is unbelievably simple and so it could be harmonized anyway you could turn it into any kind of rhythm and so half the creativeness about being a songwriter is also is how you present the song you know especially if you're a guitar player so uh, uh, so I, I wanted to put that tune up there and and do that, and, it, and we might even put one or two other tunes up there because I, I just want to engage uh, uh, musicians all over the world and and uh, and hear what they're up to and and make sure that you know we're that we're out here listening. So uh, I want to hear what everybody's doing as well. I I love six string that I I could we you, you the regular contest which will definitely uh, start up again and hopefully the second half of 21. Uh, you could sign up for. Uh, guitar in six different categories, whether it was rock or metal or any kind of variation of rock, jazz, any kind of variation of jazz fusion or cla you know, classic jazz or whatever, and then blues and blues rock, acoustic blues, and, and then country and, and uh, rhythm and, and just, just about any style imaginable on the guitar. You could find your category and sign up. And, and we had people visit us from... 188 countries last time and there's you know that's wow. that's pretty much every country in the world that has the internet open and uh, so it, it, and then i think we had signups from uh gosh uh, i'm forgetting the exact number but it was in the 40s or 50s it was like you know just guitar players and bass players and drummers and keyboard players from all over the world and 
There's just phenomenal young musicians in all ages now from all over the planet. And uh, I love that because a lot of them bring their uh, styles of, of what country they're from, you know. So, like from Brazil, you know, I'm, I'm connected to Brazil big time. My son is half Brazilian, my wife's Brazilian. And uh, uh, so I, you know, the, 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 the Brazilian guitar players are phenomenal down there now. They always were, but now they're they're world class. And and same, in, of course, in Europe and yeah. e- Eastern Europe. And uh, so I, I just love it to hear uh, from the from Japan, from China, from all over. I, I love to hear musicians from from all over the planet. And, and we we really found out now that the planet is quite small. That's really a great thing you're doing now the current contest how do people find out about it they go i mean they can always go well, to your, you, your main yeah, website you, you, yeah you can go to my leewrittenhour.com website you can go to sixstringtheory.com and uh it's there it's uh you know obviously we made it free and there's some good sponsors and yamaha being one of them and mascot label group uh, out of the netherlands which released my record and that's a great label uh, by the way and uh uh, you know, my friend Steve Lukather was on it for years and still is, and and uh, he he always told me about it, and and then they reached out to me when uh, it was time to do this. Uh, you know, about the time I was thinking of doing the solo guitar record, and, and uh, they they've got everything from progressive rock to heavy metal to blues. You know, uh, now Joe Bonamassa has uh, been on the label with his European releases, and uh, ah. uh, George Benson's on it. I think Robin Ford done a project and and uh, there's a bunch of you know classic rock and, and metal guys on it as well so uh, you know it so they they understood the guitar a lot so between them and Yamaha in Japan I had a, a good home for Dreamcatcher I didn't realize the breadth of the you know the range of artists that were on mascot that's that's interesting very cool um, and you've always given these amazing prizes in your contests too these like a contest is an understatement it's like a search for new voices on, on instruments and like everything from berkeley college of music scholarships which for yes. anyone who wants to do that that's a huge huge prize yeah. to yeah, playing no, with you but, in japan and different like yeah no it, we made it a we made it a point and in uh, 2021 when the bigger contest comes back it'll be similar that uh and i i'm pretty sure everyone will be on yeah. board again and uh, you know the Berkeley College of Music in Boston has just been phenomenal and and gave full scholarships and and uh, different online uh, education possibilities to uh, the winners and uh, and then the USC has been a, a sponsor as well and yes and and then f- uh, definitely uh, the chance for everyone to come out to LA and Yamaha was great because uh, uh, in 2018 everybody came to uh, uh, and performed at the NAM show with me and and uh, Yamaha put them to work at the Yamaha booth and, and that was fun. And and then we did a recording at Sunset Sound, the, the iconic studio in Los Angeles that's recorded everybody from Hendrix to the Doors, and and uh, you know so they they're still there. So we we and then they went on the road with me and played in, in, in Europe and Japan and and so uh, and played at the, uh, the Saint Moritz Jazz Festival in Switzerland, and so I you know. It was really a chance for these winners to come from all over the world and and really participate in like you know it's sort of like 
there are other contests that maybe give a bigger monetary prize or something like that, but I, I wanted to show all these musicians off, you know, and just like, let's play, you know, and uh, put them in the, yeah. in the in the best circumstances. So um, I, I think it's, it's, it's more incredible than ever to be, to try to do music as a, as your life and have it as part of your life. But on the other hand, it's also more challenging and it's harder because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's changed so much and it's probably getting ready to change. But I'm, I'm kind of of the, of the philosophy that once we're kind of through this big hump with, um, whatever is going to happen in the next couple of years and everybody gets healthy and, and we're back to sort of whatever is the new normal, uh, that, uh, people will need, uh, a lot of live music in their life. And, uh, I think the oh, roaring twenties yeah. will be back. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's going to be a boom. Yeah. There's definitely going to be a surge. It's gonna yeah. And and you know it's 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 great that we we do these podcasts and we can be and you know it was phenomenal for me to make the solo guitar record because that was exactly what it was it was a solo guitar record and and uh, yeah. and I I ended up adding some layering some parts on some songs and and uh, there's one song called couldn't couldn't help you couldn't help myself and and yeah. and there's like 20 guitar parts on it and and I I just went for it like I said well no let me let me. Let me let me do this right, you know. And, yeah, it's uh, got some beautiful like themes in there, little lyrical mm-hmm. melodies. Hey, folks! Quick reminder, Nam, check out what they're doing for Believe in Music Week. January 18th is when it starts. You can register anytime for free, and you'll be able to attend NAM from your couch. For many of you, in a way, this will be your first NAM show. Great opportunity to interact with all those artists, manufacturers, and industry leaders. And it's kind of like a big social network for a week, too, so you can uh, connect with other people who are as deep as you are into music. Registration is free at attend.believeinmusic.tv. Once again, attend.believeinmusic.tv. No doubt about it. You know, I think uh, making music for a, a live audience and having the live audience part of the experience and, and having musicians play together, you cannot replace that, you know. So, so. Uh, uh, but as far as the sixstringtheory.com, uh, if you, if you want to get on uh, the current contest that's... Uh, can, connected with my album that's fantastic and uh and then look for the uh the second half of 21 uh for uh for the uh more expansive uh competition to get back on board well it's just great that you've been doing that for so long now it's like it must be like 10 years or something yeah no uh it, it came out of the uh the six string theory record that you know that we put together in 2010 yeah i think and, i wrote the uh, liner notes for that you did, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the, my did. one and only one and only liner note. So it was definitely an honor to write about it. And I mean, an absolutely insane album because you have all the guests slash George Benson, Lukather, BB King, rest his soul. Yeah, Neil Neil Sean, Keb Mo, Robert Cray. Um, I mean, no, I'm leaving some people out. Probably. Like you said, Bonamassa. Andy McKee, Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. Yeah, Joe Robinson. Yeah, Joe Robinson. Yeah, that's an incredible record. And yeah, a long string, incredible records. And the funny thing was is that um, 
I, I came up with this idea that I wanted to have, you know, a, a little competition to have some brand new talent on the record because most of the guitar players, you know, everyone from B.B. King to me to, uh, to Neil Sean to uh, Mike Stern to all, all the cats that were on the record were very famous and very well known, but they were also had been around for a long time, which is, you know, would stand to... You would think that would be true because they were all established, and so I said, "Well, let me, let me." And you know, a couple of the guys were, were newer, like Joe Robinson and and uh, and even Andy. But uh, but at the same time, I said, "Well, let me get a brand new talent." And so Yamaha and back in those days, Monster Cable they uh, and Berkeley uh, they sponsored a, a competition, and uh, and uh, a classical guitarist wanted from Canada and and. Uh, and then that started the whole six-string theory thing that has continued to uh, 2020. Amazing. Now, before I let you go, obviously you love Wes Montgomery. Uh, I didn't even have to say Montgomery, but I added his last name. Most people in the guitar contest know Wes. And you name your son Wesley, who yep. often performs with you. In fact, I just remembered, I think that was probably the last time I saw you. We randomly ran into each other at at baggage claim and i got to meet wesley for a second ah, at, at, that's right that's right at the lax yeah but um wes has obviously been a huge influence on you wes montgomery the one thing i know from wes is i learned the solo from montgomery funk it's like a blues it's really cool oh man But I'm just totally faking it with my cowboy guitar pick and everything. But what, no, that's you, great. What, what would you suggest for a guy like me who, to me, Wes is this uncharted territory, one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century and beyond. What would be a piece or something that I could start? Or what did you start out on when you were falling in love with his guitar playing back in the day? Well, you know, the when I was, <laughs> that's a long time ago, right? <laughs> and uh, so when I was 12, so it was like 1964, and so you know all the rock guitar. It was an incredible time for guitar because guitar was just starting to explode, right? And the Beatles were coming, and Hendrix was coming, and Jeff Beck and Clapton and BB and John Lee Hooker and Albert King. All those guys were already established in the in the country field. Guys like Chet Atkins were already around, and. And, and Jerry Reed, and uh, and then the great studio guitar players, and out in L.A., Barney Kessel was here, and Howard Roberts, and and uh, Joe Pass, and it was just everywhere you. And then you know, it was all these, the the doors were happening, and the Love and Spoonful. It was just the guitar was everywhere, right? And so my dad would, he bought me uh, that album Bumpin', and and. Uh, uh, and and he bought me a Howard Roberts record. He bought me a Joe Pass record, and and so he would take me down to the lighthouse, which was in Hermosa Beach, and we lived close to there. And uh, and I remember, and it was this cigar-shaped club, and it's still there. It's called the Lighthouse Cafe now. And and so it was this cigar-shaped thing. And back then, a, a little kid could sit at the bar. So I would sit at the bar, and across from the bar was the bandstand and Wes would would play and it was the most phenomenal sound coming out of his guitar and and the sound that we all know 
but the, the the thing that was and it the few videos that you can see of Wes on on uh, online, you see this on a couple of TV shows. He he almost never looks at the guitar, and I remember him looking at the doorway way down to the left of his guitar at this long club and looking at the doorway to see who was coming in and almost like nodding as people were coming in and he was playing this <laughs> pheno- this phenomenal stuff and I'm. And that was like blowing me away as much as anything. I was like 12 years old going, how is this possible, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so I think one of the things that made me attracted to jazz guitar was the sound that he got on his guitar. Because I was always about the sound. And later as a studio musician and, and also... Then I was growing up in L.A. and studying classical guitar later with Christopher Parkening, who was influenced by Segovia, and, and Chris always had this phenomenal sound on his guitar. And then, you know, my neighbor was, was Carlton. He, he lived in Torrance. I lived in Palos Verdes. And so, you know, we all had our 335s, and then Jay Graydon was around, and Dean Parks was around, and my buddies Mitch Holder and Tim May, and, and we were all taking yeah. these master classes from Howard Roberts. And it was, everybody was into the sound, you know, so, and, and then somebody like Hendrix comes along, and it's like, wait a minute, what is that sound? How is that even possible? <laughs> You know? And the first time we all heard Hendrix on the radio, it was like, what? You know, and uh, it, yeah, that was far beyond, so far beyond my scope. I didn't even go there, you know. <laughs> and right. So, um, and um, so it, uh, but Wes and Howard Roberts and Joe Pass, you know, they were, they were starting, and they, they were starting to sort of changed the sound of everything uh, and then one other guitar player that I used to hear at the clubs was from Hungary famous guitarist that a lot of people don't know so well Gabor Zabo and uh, Gabor Zabo was this jazz guitar player that played uh, I think it was a might have been a guild and it was a steel string guitar with a pickup on it and he would play these these things that were influenced from his country that was jazz oriented but then had kind of his influences from from Europe and and play these open string kind of things and and I remember taking a lesson from him one time and and I picked up his guitar and and uh, I said can I try your guitar and and he said sure and I tried his guitar and I said I don't I don't sound like you when I play your guitar he laughed he said no of course not you know (laughs) so you know it, it is in the fingers no doubt about it yeah well Mr. Captain Fingers, thank you for uh, hanging out with us today. All right, dude. I, I know we talked too much. You probably wanted to play more, but... Uh, oh, know, no, no, no. That's what the, uh, the the clubs and the concerts and uh, that we'll be yeah. back to soon. And, uh, and, of course, the record is for. Absolutely. And, you know, just having the guitar in your hands, just so that we have the full range of the conversation. It's not like something we have to, like wish we had just having it there makes such a huge difference so i really appreciate you recording today and and you did play a lot for us so i totally appreciate <laughs> it yeah probably you wanted to say be quiet man i can't hear you talk you know <laughs> no 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 but uh you know that that's one advice i'll give to every guitar player and, and all of us know this but just keep the guitar in your hands all the time you know that's that's the deal yeah, yeah right on you <laughs> so. Keep it alive to your 105. <laughs> All right, dude. Just keep 
keep up your good work and and uh, we'll talk soon hopefully i'll see you sooner than later okay